Welcome back, iHub listeners. This week, we have the opportunity to listen to Carolina Nunez, the Associate Dean for Faculty and Curriculum and Professor of Law at Brigham Young University's Law School. In this episode, Carolina talks a little bit about her background growing up in both the U.S. and Venezuela, while also sharing her experiences as an immigration lawyer and the effects she saw that immigration can have in both business and government policy. Okay, so will you just tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and where you live? So I was actually born in Provo, right here at what is now Utah Valley Regional Medical Center. But uh, my dad is from Venezuela, and my mom is from Las Vegas, and they met here at BYU in the 70s. And I was born just before we moved to Venezuela. So I grew up in Venezuela. Uh, My dad worked actually for a petroleum company, Maravén was its name. And so we lived actually in a petroleum camp. I lived in like this house that was on stilts um, just outside of Maracaibo in a little town. Um, There was literally an oil well in my backyard. And they actually painted Woody Woodpecker on it. And I think it was to make us all feel like we weren't all being killed by chemicals or whatever else is going on. I don't know. So I lived um, in a bunch of towns sort of out out in the petroleum world. Bachaquero, Lagunillas, for anybody that actually has any knows any of those towns. But my dad is from Caracas. I spent my early years sort of in this petroleum world. Um, and then my parents got divorced. And my mom uh, came back to the United States. And my dad stayed in Venezuela, but in Caracas. I basically went back and forth. From the time I was nine years old, I would do nine months in the U.S. and three months in Venezuela. And I did that all the way through high school, college at BYU, and part of law school as well. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's, that's really cool. So when you came to the U.S. when you were nine years old, did you have any English like knowledge or did you learn it mostly here? So I did have English because my mom spoke English to me in Venezuela. Okay. I didn't really read in English. So actually those first years in school were a little bit hard in terms of reading. Writing I was actually okay at. It was the reading that was harder. Um, And I even remember in my school there was a certain number of pages we were supposed to read by the end of each term. Mm -hmm. In that first year, I remember just picking up picture books that only had just a few words on each page because that's all I could manage to get the number of pages (laughs) that I had to read. It was a transition and I had done really well in school in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. I've always loved school and so I think it was sort of hard for me to imagine that I might not be perfect at school. So uh-huh. Okay, and so then you went to law school here at BYU? I did, yeah. Okay, and what made you decide to do that? I think the biggest thing driving me towards law school is I loved school, and I didn't want to leave school, and law school was an opportunity to continue schooling. <laughs> so not a very good reason to do that. I had some vague sense that having the law degree, the credential, would help me do things to improve the world. And I was, I think it was a pretty typical sort of idealist going to law school to change the world. That was sort of sort of the idea. Now, law school has a way of kind of, it doesn't really like ruin that. I think you're still an idealist coming out of law school, but you recognize all the obstacles and challenges and what the system is like. And it was a very useful education. And I tell everybody that the first year of law school was the single most mind-opening piece of my education mm-hmm. still to this date. Uh-huh. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, so after uh, law school, what did you do? So after law school, I clerked for a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and his chambers were in Austin. So I clerked there for a year. Um, by that point, 
I'd been married for a few years. My husband actually had a job still in Utah. So we commuted for a year. So I lived in, in Austin and he lived in in here in Utah and he and I would fly back and forth. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so then after you clerked for a year, what did you do next? Then I took a job at a law firm in Salt Lake City and I just did sort of commercial, general commercial litigation. So business to business disputes. Okay. Like okay. So, and then after that, is that when you came to BYU? That's when I came to BYU okay. to teach. Okay. Yeah. And how long have you been here? I started teaching in January 2008. And what has been most of your research focused on? I, my specialty, my interest is immigration and citizenship. A lot of my research is focused on undocumented immigrants and their rights, both under the Constitution and sort of state legislation, and then citizenship, including naturalization, birthright citizenship, and things like that. Uh What have been some of the most interesting things that you've learned about as you've been studying immigration law and undocumented immigrants? When I I was practicing, I didn't really do immigration law. So my only experience with immigration had been my own sort of coming to the U.S., as well as a little bit of immigration work that I had done for family members who were immigrating from Venezuela. And I didn't really know much about immigration, honestly. When I began to really research immigration law and get to know it, I was shocked by how many uh, myths about immigration Mm -hmm. and immigration law Mm -hmm. there are just all over the place, right? You hear it from everywhere. And so one of the biggest things that I, I like to talk about when people ask me questions about immigration law is, sort of to dispel myths about immigration. But there are a lot of things like that where I would have never known what the reality of immigration looks like Mm -hmm. if I hadn't actually studied it in depth. And it took me really, I mean, I'm still learning it, right? But it took me at least three years to feel like I had a handle on what our immigration system looks like. Mm -hmm. And I learn things all the time, every day about Uh immigration law. What are some of the myths that you think are kind of general? One thing that I hear people say all the time is, Uh, I can tell that their vision of who undocumented immigrants are is that they are people from either Mexico or Central America who have crossed over the southern border, right? Um, But the reality is that the vast majority of people who become undocumented immigrants today are overstaying a visa. So they've actually arrived on airplanes or through other ports of entry, right? Mm -hmm. And had a visa to be here, but actually overstayed. Okay. Yeah. And so... You know, that's one myth that I hear all the time. And that actually turns out to be fairly important to policy because if the concern is undocumented immigrants, Mm -hmm. if it's not the border, then maybe a wall (laughs) makes no sense at all, right? Uh Right. So just things like that, that Mm -hmm. I think if people knew that, it would be relevant to policy making decisions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's very interesting. I know that you've done a lot of work in Dilly, Texas, right? Yeah. Can you tell me about what you do there? Yes, so Dilly is home to the largest family immigration detention center. And family detention center is a little bit of a misnomer because it's just women and children. So even if the women and children come with a father or an uncle or whoever, right, it's, it, there are no men in the facility, grown men. But what we do is we take students to volunteer for a week preparing women and children for their credible fear interviews. And credible fear interviews are interviews that you have within the detention center to determine whether you should be released into the United States to be able to pursue an asylum claim mm-hmm. or whether you should be returned to your country of origin. Okay. So it's just like a threshold determination. Do you have something that an immigration judge should hear or not? And so we take our students to help prepare women and children for that. Okay, that's really cool. And how did you find this specific center in Dilly? 
Well, family detention started up during the Obama administration, and I just started seeing it in the news. And at first it started with these sort of temporary facilities that the administration had set up. And there were a lot of my colleagues in immigration law that were going and doing a volunteering stint at mm -hmm. these temporary facilities. And the stories that they reported, the experiences they had made me think, wow, this is something where we should take our students. But I could not figure out how to really do it. Like I couldn't figure out the bureaucracy of just getting it approved at the university, for example. Also, I was worried that it, there would be a lot of secondary trauma because the stories that these detainees tell are, are horrible. They're really, really cruel and unspeakable gang violence. And I was worried about our students, how they would react to that. So I have a much more brave colleague, Kif Augustine Adams, and she said, you know what, I'm going to go. I'm going to go do this. Do you want to come with me? I said, yeah, let's just do it, you and me. And she actually went with her family. So it was her family, and I tagged along with them, and we volunteered for one week. And it was hard, and there was, I felt like there was a lot of drama, but it wasn't something that I thought would be crushing to our students. I thought our students can do this, so we both did. And so since then, we've been alternating taking students for a week at a time during our our break. We have a one-week break each uh -huh. semester, and the students go. Oh, that's really yeah. cool. That's really awesome. Okay, stepping back, I wanted to ask a few questions about yeah. more of your childhood. Do you think there was any, like, cultural shocks you had when you were in each place or cultural differences that you noticed that were kind of interesting to you? I mean, there's a million cultural sure. differences that I probably don't even, I wouldn't even be able to catalog at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I do remember moving here to the U.S. I went to Las Vegas. Um, so when I was nine months here and three months there, those first few cycles of that were in Las Vegas, nine months. But pop culture was more important to nine-year-olds than the, here in the U.S., for example, than it was to children in Venezuela. Okay. And I remember um, this was the late 80s, and it was hair that was like seven inches off of your head. Uh -huh. And just things I had never seen. And I remember going up to a girl and asking her, like, how do you do that with her, your hair? And she didn't even really want to talk to me. She's a curling iron. And she turned around and walked away. And I had never even heard of what a curling iron is either. Like this, these were just things I had never seen. I had never seen like computers in my classroom. And it's not that I went to a bad school in Venezuela. I went to a Catholic private school that was very good, but computers were not in the classroom. It was just a very different world. And I still sort of to this day feel like I missed the 80s in its entirety. So when people say stuff about the 80s, I say, wow, well, while you were living the 80s, I was living like, I don't know, like maybe like the 70s in Venezuela. <laughs> I was watching reruns from the 70s. I was watching. So I feel like I had a very different childhood compared okay. to other people. And then yeah. there are a myriad of other cultural yeah, differences. That's a, good, yeah. that's a good example, though, the pop cultural. Okay, another question I had is, what kind of impact do you think immigration law has on businesses? So uh, a lot of immigration is actually started by businesses. Businesses need employees. They either cannot find what they're looking for within the United States or enough of what they're looking for within the United States. So they go outside, right? Depending on what immigration laws look like, that determines whether these businesses can hire who they want to hire. Um, and it's interesting because I talk to people who maybe you would sort of consider on the conservative scale of politics mm -hmm. who who are nonetheless very libertarian when it comes to immigration. And so while we often associate conservatism in politics with more restrictive immigration, they are 
actually more liberal on immigration precisely for the business needs, right? They say, mm-hmm. we've, we've got to hire people yeah. to do this. I think about times when we've been more restrictionist and there have been states that have passed legislation that made it really difficult to be an immigrant in the state. I can think of some southern states a few years ago. And the effects resulted in like farms having crops rot. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so tell me about the work that you did in Venezuela. So one summer during law school, so I told you that I would go back and forth between the U.S. and Venezuela. So one summer I was in Venezuela, uh, my first year of law school, I had just finished it. And I took like an internship kind of job at a law firm in Venezuela. So I was doing work for them. So that is my sole like professional work experience in Venezuela. But it was really fascinating, actually. It was it was during a politically turbulent time in, in Caracas, in Venezuela in general, and particularly in Caracas. And it was really interesting to see. We from, from the outside will look at a country that's in kind of political turmoil and just try to imagine that life comes to this screeching halt when these things happen, but life has to keep going, right? And so we were all showing up at work in the face of tear gas being just outside, right, the building and things like that. So that was one interesting aspect of it. And then the other interesting thing was, so that summer I actually also worked for a little while in a law firm in the United States. In in the law firm in Venezuela that I was at, there were women who were lawyers and men who were lawyers. And I, I saw more cultural acceptance and tolerance for women working outside of the home as a lawyer more than I saw in the U.S., which I thought was really interesting because we often think of South America as being less accepting of sort of non-traditional career paths for genders and maybe more rigid gender ideas, right? But I didn't feel that there in Venezuela. So that was kind of an interesting takeaway. And I also felt like there was a lot of camaraderie in that law firm in Venezuela. And that was not necessarily to say that there's not camaraderie in the United States, but just people were very friendly with each other. And I think maybe it is a difference in business culture of being a little bit warmer and a little bit more, I don't know if casual is the right word, but just uh, having an actual friendly relationship on top of the business relationship, where I feel like in the U.S. we do a lot more arm's length deals. Mm-hmm. I feel like what I saw there was a, a little bit more, more relationship building maybe than we yeah than we have here. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. That's so. cool. That's a good point. I also read that you sit on the board of Better Days 2020. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So Better Days 2020 is a, a nonprofit dedicated to popularizing Utah women's history. The idea here is to kind of highlight the contrast. So in the news and in studies, Utah often doesn't come out as the most friendly place for uh, women's leadership or women's advancement or women's education. We have a lot of sort of stats where we need to catch up um, with the rest of the country. But if we go back in history not too too long, we were on the cutting edge, right? We were the first to have women voting in, in Utah. Uh, Wyoming also was, was pretty early with us. And we had women who were getting advanced degrees and having careers very early on. And this organization is dedicated to sort of spreading that news in the run-up to the anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So besides spreading the news, what are other steps you think that we should take as society to further women's success, yeah. get them in more leadership roles? I think really the spreading the news is the biggest thing. Telling stories, for me, stories are really, really important. And 
I uh, see people's eyes light up when we communicate in stories. And so when I tell a story of some woman suffrage, women suffrage leader, people identify with that person, right? And when you can identify with somebody, then you can see a little bit of that person in you and you can see sort of the potential. So I think that's a huge piece of it. And in fact, this organization, there's a lot of ways of spreading that news. There are celebrations and there are actually educational modules for public schools and things like that. I think we all want each other to maximize our potential, right? I, I, I believe in the best intentions of society and people. And so I think if we could sort of give more voice and more action to those desires and intentions, it would be easier for uh, women not to feel maybe the cultural pressure that they might feel that's sort of keeping them from doing what they want to explore, right? Yeah, I like that. What would you say are good characteristics or necessary characteristics of a leader? I think it's really important to be honest and transparent. I think it's easy when you are in a position, a decision-making position, to just make decisions and not reveal your true intentions or your true reasons for that. And maybe it's because you're worried that that will uh, elicit a reaction of some kind. I think if you can navigate that, if you can be transparent and honest, I think people trust you more. Mm -hmm. And I think they also, not only will they trust your decision-making, but they will trust you to take the feedback that they give you and, and consider it and give it its due weight. And when you have trust, I think it's a lot easier to work together. And at the end of the day, I think that's what a leader is doing, is trying to get a group of people to work together. Yeah, that's really good. So a lot of our audience is students. So I guess my last question would be, what advice would you give to people who are just graduating and going out into the workforce? And I, I would say, I, I, I see this in students more and more. There is I say that as if I'm like 100 years old. This was this existed. <laughs> this has always existed, and it hasn't been that long where I felt this. But a fear to make a mistake, and I would say the biggest thing that I am learning, and I'm still, I still hate making mistakes, right? But is just to embrace making a mistake, and it would be better to try and make that mistake than just to sort of not try anything. And I have, I've, there are lots of situations that I've regretted sort of standing idling, idly by or not doing anything, but I've never regretted trying something even when I have made a mistake. That's good advice. I like that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week. Check out our other material and podcast at internationalhub.org. And we hope that you join us again next time on Cultural Conversations. Thank you.